This is Ideas Worth Exploring by Mark MacDonald. In the late 1800s, two fossil hunters named Edward Drinker Cope and Othniel Charles Marsh had an intense and ruthless rivalry. They would sabotage each other's finds and destroy promising fossil beds so the other couldn't get to them. They would spy on each other, bribe each other's employees, or just outright steal their finds. Cope and Marsh were financially and socially ruined by this battle for dominance. But during this time, they also made many important contributions to the field of paleontology, or the study of fossils and ancient life. This period was called the Bone Wars. In this episode, we're talking about dinosaurs. Dinosaurs have been extinct for millions of years, yet every three-year-old seems to be an expert on them. So, given the fact that time machines haven't been invented yet, how is it possible to know everything we know about dinosaurs? For example, it was only in the last 20 or 30 years that it became widely accepted that many species of dinosaurs were covered in feathers. How could we possibly know this? Specifically, we're going to talk about three fields that shed evidence on the ancient world. First, geology, the discovery of fossils and how their location in the rock gives us information we can use. Second, chemistry, and specifically how a technique called radiometric dating lets us know how old different fossils are. And third, biology, and how an understanding of modern animals helps us understand what life was like millions of years ago. And then, after all that, we're going to talk about the different types of chicken nuggets. But first, a word from our distant ancestors. In ancient times, people knew about fossils, but there, weren't, there wasn't a wide agreement about what they were. In China, they found dinosaur bones and thought they belonged to dragons. They even crushed up the bones and used them in medicine. Apparently, powdered dragon bone had healing properties. The Greeks thought the dinosaur bones belonged to long-dead mythological beasts or ancient giant humans. Aristotle mentions that he thought fossilized seashells were once living animals, which is true, in case you're wondering. But other than that, he doesn't have much to say about them, which is too bad. I always enjoy making fun of Aristotle. So, what is a fossil? Here's a hint. If you toss your dog a dinosaur bone, he'll break his teeth on it because fossils are made of rock. But it's rock that looks very much like a bone. So is it a bone? Or is it a rock? Is it a rocky bone? Fossils are usually formed from bones or teeth or shells because other softer tissue tends to decompose. However, how it happens is that sometimes after an animal dies, its bones get covered in mud or sand, and then over time, it gets covered in more and more layers of mud or sand. And when the layers keep building up, this can put a lot of pressure on the layers below, and the pressure eventually turns the lower layers into sedimentary rock. So fossils are almost always found embedded in rock. And sorry to ruin your childhood dreams, but you'll never find a T-Rex bone buried in the dirt in your backyard. You have to break open rocks to find dinosaur bones. But you might find a piece of rock with fossilized seashells in it, so not all hope is lost. Anyway, while the surrounding mud or sand is being turned into rock, the bone itself is also being turned into rock through, different, through a different process. Over time, water leaks into the buried bone, and this water has minerals dissolved in it. Sometimes the dissolved minerals get left behind and form tiny crystals on each of the cells in the bone. As this is happening, the organic matter in the cells dissolves, and more minerals are left to replace it until these tiny crystals cover both the inside and the outside of each cell and form a crystal cast of the bone from the inside out. It doesn't always turn completely into rock, though. 
Recently, we've discovered that sometimes organic matter gets trapped and preserved in there, and in some cases, we've even been able to extract dinosaur DNA from fossils. That sounds like Jurassic Park just waiting to happen. Here's a fun fact. The Jurassic period ended 145 million years ago, but T-Rex didn't exist until 50 million years after that. So T-Rex does not belong in a place called Jurassic Park. You never, you never even touched the Jurassic period. But without a time machine, how can we know when T-Rex lived? There's no such thing as an oldness meter that measures how old something is. Instead, we have to do some science. We can use geology to tell how old a fossil is. That's because rocks are like onions. They have layers. As I just described, a fossil starts out when a bone is covered in a layer of mud or sand and eventually turns into rock. Later, subsequent layers of mud or sand turn into different layers of rock. And each layer is distinct enough that we can tell them apart. So generally, if a fossil is in a layer that's higher up, then it's more recent. Using this fact, we can tell which fossils are older and which ones are younger. But we can do better than that. It's called radiometric dating. Why did the geologist decide to become a paleontologist? Because he loved rocks so much, he wanted to date them. Radiometric dating uses the fact that in nature, some materials are radioactive. This needs a little bit of chemistry to understand. As I talked about in a previous episode, Atoms are made of electrons, protons, and neutrons. We name the atom based on the number of protons. For example, if it has 19 protons, then it's potassium. There are a few different elements we can use to date rocks, but I'm going to use potassium as an example. Most potassium has 20 neutrons, but there is a very small amount that has 21 neutrons, so we call it potassium-40, because 19 protons plus 21 neutrons equals 40. Unlike normal potassium, potassium-40 is slightly radioactive. It turns out that this is what makes bananas slightly radioactive, because they contain a noticeable amount of potassium-40. Uh, this radioactivity of potassium means that every once in a while, because of a weird quantum thing, a proton turns into a neutron, and the potassium-40 changes into argon-40, which is a gas. I'm actually planning on talking more about why this happens in the next episode, but for now just accept that there's a process that turns potassium-40 into argon gas, and that on a large scale it's very regular, you could set your clock by it. That's it for the chemistry, but before I can explain what this has to do with dinosaurs, I need to talk about rocks for a minute. Rocks are divided into three types, igneous, metamorphic, and sedimentary. Sedimentary is a type of rock I talked about earlier, where layers of mud or sand are subjected to a lot of pressure and turn into rocks. Most fossils are found in sedimentary rocks. You can also sometimes find fossils in metamorphic rocks, but for today I'm going to pretend that metamorphic rocks don't exist because I don't want things to get complicated. Igneous rocks are formed from lava or magma. One pota our potassium story is all about igneous rocks, so let's get back to that. Deep in the earth, rocks exist in a liquid state called magma. As magma, all the different elements that form rocks are all mixed together, and that includes potassium. When potassium-40 and magma decays and turns into argon gas, the gas escapes. But once the magma has cooled and formed a layer of rock, the argon is trapped inside. So for a given layer of rock, 
if you can compare the amount of argon to the amount of potassium-40, you know exactly how long it's been since the magma cooled. But wait, you say, isn't magma, like, really hot? Wouldn't the dinosaur bones melt? Very astute of you, young Padawan. Yes, magma would melt the dinosaur bones, but that's not where the dinosaur bones are. Bones form in sedimentary rock, and magma creates igneous rock. So if we want to date something using the potassium and argon, we need to have a layer of igneous rock above and below the layer of sedimentary rock containing the fossils. Then you can find the age of each of those layers, and they give a bracket for how old the fossil can be. This process of using radioactive isotopes like potassium-40 to find the age of rocks is called radiometric dating. You can use it when there just happens to be a layer of igneous rock above and below the rock you're interested in. If you don't have that, then maybe you can find some other way to guess its age, but you might be out of luck. Yeah, no one said being a paleontologist was easy. So, we've talked about some geology and some chemistry already. The third way I said that we can learn about dinosaurs is through biology both through understanding the process of evolution and also by looking at how modern animals behave. Think about this. What is the one thing that everyone knows about dinosaurs? It's that they're giant reptiles. So, what's a reptile, and how does knowing that dinosaurs are reptiles help us understand dinosaurs? I could answer that question, but I don't want to. Instead, I'm going to tell you about birds. In elementary school, you usually learn about some of the different classes of animals, including fish, amphibians, mammals, birds, and reptiles. And this makes sense because animals in each class share important characteristics, like fish tend to live in the water, mammals are covered in hair and produce milk, and birds have wings and feathers. Dividing animals up like this makes a lot of sense, but sometimes it can get you into trouble when you, have to, when you think of each of these classes as having developed independently. Because it turns out that birds are descended from reptiles. Yep, all birds have a great, great, a thousand greats ancestor that had scales. How do we know that? By carefully comparing the anatomy of birds to fossils of ancient reptiles and noticing that they are very similar. And yes, that kind of comparison, that kind of comparison makes it sound like it would be very easy to make a mistake. But the thing is, Scientists love to disagree, so if the experts all agree on something, then it's pretty strong evidence that they're onto something. And virtually all experts agree that birds are, in fact, descended from reptiles. And not just any reptiles, birds are directly descended from dinosaurs. It's completely correct to say that birds are a type of dinosaur. So, next time a three-year-old asks you what your favorite dinosaur is, you can tell him that the only ones you've tried are chicken and turkey, and between the two you prefer chicken. He will be utterly confused, but at least you can congratulate yourself on how clever you are. And another thing, many dinosaurs were covered in feathers. We have fossils of feathers to prove it. It's rare for soft tissue such as feathers to be preserved well enough to survive, but it happens sometimes and we've found some of it. Okay, now that we're being pedantic and claiming that birds are dinosaurs, Let's get some other things out of the way. The big flying lizards, like pterodactyls, not dinosaurs. Why not? Are they missing an inherent property of dinosaurness? 
Maybe they just weren't vicious enough to join the dinosaur club, or maybe they forgot to pay their registration fee. Nope, not true. Pterodactyls were actually very responsible. Instead, the reason we say that pterodactyls are not considered dinosaurs is actually very similar to the reason we say that a spider is not an insect. Insect has a very specific definition, and a spider doesn't fit into it. Spiders have too many legs. In the same way, dinosaur has a very specific definition, and pterodactyls, or pterosaurs to be more precise, don't fit into it. Yes, pterosaurs and dinosaurs have a common ancestor, but so do crocodiles. And we don't call crocodiles dinosaurs. Yes, I know it's weird that birds are dinosaurs and crocodiles aren't, but that's how history happened. Crocodiles and pterosaurs branched off the family line before the lizards we know as dinosaurs came into existence, and birds branched off later. A chicken has a T-Rex for an uncle, while the chicken and the crocodile are only second cousins twice removed. And the chicken and the pterodactyl are third cousins four times removed. Or something like that. Well, we're here. Why can't you hear a pterodactyl go to the bathroom? Because the pee is silent. Okay, we've talked about geology, chemistry, and biology. Now we're going to talk about chicken nuggets. I'm going to briefly describe five of the most iconic dinosaurs. And I define the five most iconic dinosaurs as the five that are depicted on dino chicken nuggets. Now that I think about it, a chicken is a dinosaur. So it's kind of appropriate that dino chicken nuggets are actually made of real dinosaurs. But anyway, the five dinos are Stegosaurus, Triceratops, those long-necked ones that have a name that you always forget. Pterodactyls, who you just learned aren't actually dinosaurs, but you don't really care about that because they're still dinosaurs in your heart. And of course, the Tyrannosaurus rex. Stegosaurus is definitely one of the most iconic dinosaurs it's the one with the upright plates on its back and the spikes on its tail. The plates give it the name of Stegosaurus, which in Latin means lizard with a roof, because the guy who discovered it thought that the plates laid flat on its back like shingles on a house. The arrangements of spikes on its tail is called a thagomizer, not because thagomizer means anything in Latin, but because there was once a far side cartoon about a caveman named Thag. A Stegosaurus was about 28 feet long, or the length of two and a half black rhinos, or if you prefer, 403 nickels. A stegosaurus weighed about 6,800 pounds, or the weight of 100 English bulldogs, or 5.5 million goose feathers. From measurements of a stegosaurus skull, it had a brain that probably weighed no more than 80 grams. That means that its brain was about the size of a walnut. But point of fact, an English bulldog also has the brain the size of a walnut. It's just especially striking that such a huge lizard would have such a small brain in comparison with its size. The first stegosaurus skeleton was discovered by our friend Othniel Charles Marsh during the Bone Wars. The next dinosaur we'll talk about was also discovered during the Bone Wars, but its discovery was a little more controversial. That long-necked dinosaur that you can never remember the name of? That's a brontosaurus. Or maybe it's an Apatosaurus. They look very similar. Or maybe it's a Brachiosaurus. It looks just like the other two. So which one is it? The first of these long-necked dinosaurs was the Apatosaurus, or Deceptive Lizard, which was named by Marsh in the same journal article in which he named the Stegosaurus. Then, two years later, he published another article where he described his discovery of a very similar dinosaur, which he called the Brontosaurus, or Thunder Lizard. 
but with all the pressure to discover more species than his rival, he was too hasty, because later scientists showed that the brontosaurus was so similar to apatosaurus that they should actually be considered the same dinosaur. So, for the next hundred years, brontosaurus was not only extinct, but it never even existed in the first place. This kind of thing actually happened a lot during the Bone Wars. Their rivalry led to shoddy science. But that's not the end of the story of our friend the brontosaurus. In 2015, a study went back and found that there were enough differences in their neck and shoulder bones that the two dinosaurs were actually different. So after disappearing for a hundred years, the brontosaurus is back. And good thing too, Thunder Lizard is such a cool name. The next one on the list is the pterodactyl, which we've already talked about a little, but I also want to talk about a certain woman who was involved in discovering it. Mary Anning was part of a poor family who lived in the coast of southwest England. Her father took her with him to go out fossil to go out and find and clean fossils that they would sell to tourists. They happened to live on the coast that just had a ridiculous number of fossils, and this was when collecting fossils was more of a hobby than a scientific pursuit. When Mary's father died suddenly of tuberculosis, she was encouraged to sell off her finds to help pay the family's debts. Over the next few years, Mary became an expert in fossil hunting and made some amazing discoveries including uncovering the first ichthyosaur, the first plesiosaur, and England's first pterosaur, none of which are dinosaurs, by the way, but I promise it was a big deal. The scientific community was hesitant to recognize her work because she was a woman. So even though it was well known that she was the one discovering them, it was usually the people she sold them to that got the credit for the finds, even though she was a better scientist than most of them. For example, People kept finding strange stones inside the fossil skeletons. The stones eventually became known as coprolite. Mary was the one to suggest that these, um, these were actually fossilized dinosaur feces, and she was eventually proven correct. It was, poop all, it was poop all along. And another thing, like I mentioned, one of the things she discovered was one of the first fossils of a pterosaur, also known as a pterodactyl. So... Not the first one to discover flying lizards, but they were the first flying lizards outside of continental Europe, and that showed that pterodactyls had a lot wider range than anyone thought previously. Mostly, I just wanted to use this as an excuse to talk about Mary Anning. Also, the rhyme, she sells seashells by the seashore, is often said to be inspired by her life, which is probably not true, but it's still interesting. Back to the Bone Wars. The Triceratops was another product of the Bone Wars. Triceratops is the one with the three horns on its head, and its name means three-horned face in Greek. It was named by our friend Marsh, which is impressive because that means he discovered three of our chicken nuggets, Brontosaurus, Stegosaurus, and Triceratops. But when Marsh saw the first discovered Triceratops skull, he didn't think it was a dinosaur at all. He didn't think that dinosaurs had horns, so he concluded that it was an extinct species of bison. However, when a more complete skull was discovered, he corrected his mistake. The last of the chicken nuggets is, of course, the Tyrannosaurus rex. T-Rex was discovered after the rest of them, after Cope and Marsh had both died. Its name means Tyrant Lizard King. Good name for a vicious flesh-eating monster with a big head and little arms, in my opinion. But wait, there's more. As of four months ago, from the time I'm recording this, it was proposed 
that T. rex isn't just a single species, but three different species. Based on the size of their leg bones and the number of incisor teeth they had, it was suggested that the tyrant lizard started out as a single species called Tyrannosaurus imperator, or emperor of the tyrant lizards, and then over millions of years, it evolved into two separate species, the OG Tyrannosaurus rex, king of the tyrant lizards, and the Tyrannosaurus regina, the queen of the tyrant lizards. Who would win in a fight? There is literally no possible way of knowing, but my bet's on the queen. The division of T-Rex into three different species is not universally accepted. It might be a mistake, and the differences are just due to variation among individuals. Kind of like how even if a couple humans had strangely shaped teeth and thicker legs, they wouldn't be enough, that wouldn't be enough to make them a different species. So the debate still rages on, and it normally takes many years to reach scientific consensus. So until that happens, the fate of Tyrannosaurus remains undetermined. Speaking of dinosaur leg bones, here's a mandatory joke break. Paleontologists are having a party to celebrate unearthing the largest ever dinosaur tibia. It's going to be quite the shindig. <laughs> That's the end of the chicken nuggets. I'll just conclude with some final thoughts about the bone wars. Who won the bone wars? Just by the numbers, it was probably Marsh. Marsh named 80 new dinosaurs, including three of our chicken nuggets, while Cope named 56, a respectable number, but still less than 80. Before their discoveries, there were only nine named species of dinosaur in North America, and all the drama surrounding their discoveries created a, dare I say it, meteoric rise in the popularity of dinos in the, with the public. So despite the fact that Marsh hired spies to steal the findings of Cope, and the fact that Cope kept an elaborate journal of every misdeed Marsh ever made, and the fact that they would sometimes tell their workers to destroy fossils that they didn't have time to excavate to make sure their rival couldn't get to them, despite all that, they both made a huge contribution to the field of paleontology. One more thing. Cope wanted to prolong the Bone Wars even after his death. One of his last requests was for his brain to be measured after his death to show that it was bigger than Marsh's. Yep, he was that petty. Marsh declined the challenge, but Cope's brain was preserved in alcohol, and his skull is still on display at the University of Pennsylvania. I will conclude with a joke. Why has no one ever made a dinosaur omelette? It's because their eggs stinked. But that's not the real answer. Why has no one ever made a dinosaur omelette? Trick question. Any omelette made from chicken eggs is a dinosaur omelette, because birds are dinosaurs. Birds are directly descended from dinosaurs, and any dinosaur expert will tell you without hesitation that birds are modern dinosaurs. The fact was discovered um, by comparing anatomy of bird skeletons to fossils. Um, we've already discussed how fossils form when bones get trapped and preserved in mud and sand, and minerals slowly replace the organic matter until what's left is mostly rock. Uh, we've also discussed how we can find the age of the rock using radioactive dating, but only if there's a layer of igneous rock above and below the rock layer you found in your fossil. Um, so hopefully now you understand how fossils work. But if you take anything away from this episode, I hope you leave with an understanding that if you let your entire career be controlled by an immoral rivalry with another scientist, you'll die penniless and your brain will be put in a jar. Or at least there's a non-zero chance of that happening. 
Thanks for listening. Next time we're going to be talking about radioactivity. Peace. This has been Ideas Worth Exploring by Mark McDonald.